You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me as usual, my winger, Ricky Squid Vive. Squid, first off, how are we keeping? And secondly, a pretty rough week since we last spoke for our Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, I'm doing okay. I, I'm sure I'm doing better than they are right now. <laughs> you, you, you know, you go into Edmonton and dominate and win all three, and then you lose two in Vancouver, then you come home and lose to the Jets. And I've said all along, I think the only team in that division that can beat the Leafs in the playoffs is the Winnipeg Jets because they match up very well against them. Uh, so, yeah, rough week, uh, but good for me because I lost about three pounds of hair or more, and uh, yes. I don't look like a Yeti anymore. I look like a normal individual. <laughs> well, that's all a question of, uh, you know, in the eyes of the beholder, right? Okay, Squid, <laughs> let's not get carried away, all right? So just keep it as it is. Now, today we've got an interesting topic. Um, we're going back, and we, we, as we've talked about, Ricky and I like to go back and talk to all facets of hockey. We want to start in the lower levels of the minor leagues, which are very, very important and critical to the National Hockey League, as we've seen the last few years. And we're very pleased to have longtime ECHL coach, who's close to your family, particularly more on Justin's side, when Matt Thomas. And he's currently the coach of the Cincinnati Cyclones, and they're not playing with the pandemic. But Justin plays for him and has now been loaned to Fort Wayne for the year. So we're going to get into... Uh, all of that with uh, Matt, and he's a very interesting guest, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. But first, um, what we want to do is we've got to obviously talk about the guys. By the way, Squid, uh, I want to point out, did you get off that wallet? There's the Ludzik. I saw that. Is he strong shirt? No, I haven't had a chance yet. Dan didn't have any when I asked him. So. Oh, Danny Lancione people, reach out to him, grab a T-shirt, support him. They sold over 400. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it, I was kind of, well, not, I, I don't know whether I was disappointed or saddened by what I read today, that he's day-to-day, basically, and kind of hanging in there. I haven't talked to Steve or Mary Ann for a while, but, you know, I thought it was only going to be a month from what they told me, but it is a three months. It's dragging on, and uh, mm-hmm. so, folks, it's, uh, you know, boy, your prayers and our wishes are all with them, so let's, 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 let's yeah, keep Yeah, absolutely. Just on a not quite as important a topic, but our Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, we're trying to hear it of his heart. By the way, we should mention that uh, we see the press today and everybody else was doing their report cards. We had them beat by about three weeks. Okay, two, uh, actually a week and a half. We beat them all. So they're all, they're all coming along now. I actually I noticed a lot of them are very, very similar. They must have been listening to us, Squid. Now, yeah. the name that keeps coming up, Nylander. We've talked about Thornton, Nylander, all the guys. We see Agostino's in the lineup tonight, so we'll see if a little change comes out. But it's at, it's at the expense of uh, Travis Boyd, it sounds like, which I still think is a mistake. But regardless, um, teams are starting to pick up on what Nylander does. He doesn't like to go to the tight spots. He doesn't like to go to the dirty areas, as I like to call, call them. The tendency is to dump the puck. And what teams are doing, they pick up. And these guys are not dumb. They, they can figure that out. You certainly did in your day. That's leaving Tavares wide open, and, and they know the puck's not getting to us. And this is what they did to Marner when Marner was playing with Tavares, and they shut him down in the playoffs that one year, and you're seeing signs of that already. And I throw that over to you. Well, 
I mean, Nylander's not exactly one of those guys that, that grinds it out that much. I mean, he's good down low. He twists and turns and gets out of the way, but, but he's a perimeter player. And, you know, you see him score a few around the goal, but not a whole lot. Uh, not a not a not a player that overly loves to get involved in in the physical part of the game, but I mean he is a good talented player. But Question. come playoffs, that's not what wins you in the games for you in the playoffs. It's getting into the trenches and doing what you need to do in order to win. And you know then you got the problem. And and I say this with you know uh, I don't even know how to explain it with Joe Thornton. You know, the guy's had an amazing career, you know, and, and I love the fact that he came to Toronto to be one of the leaders and so on. But the problem is, where do you play him now? Because he's not really effective with, you know, Marner and, and uh, Matthews, and they kicked Zach Hyman off that line. And now they've formed a really good third line with, exactly. you know, Hyman, Mikhail, yep. and... Uh, Engvall. The other gentleman Engvall. there. Engvall. Engvall. They're a really, really good uh, energy third line that can score some goals. And so, I, I mean, you know, they're talking about getting another top six forward. And I think that probably is what they do need in order to play the left side with Matthews and Martin. And, uh, you know, you get a big guy that can play with a little bit of truculence, but can you know, ha has the hands and, and the ability to play with those guys. And I think if they could do that, you know, that might solve all their problems. Well, I mean, that's where we're going to be sitting back to watch. But I mean, it also starts back in the barrel. And Freddie, he's been good, but not great. Good will not win when it counts. And everybody knows that. And that's just harsh reality, folks. That's not a knock on Freddie. It's just the way it is. The D looked a little flustered the last couple of games, but I think that may more have been a tendency for the accountability of the forwards slipping somewhat the last little bit, uh, missing some responsibilities. They've got to obviously tighten that up and take a little bit of that off of Freddie, but he's got to come up with that big save occasion, just like the night with Hellebuck. I mean, that, that was a game Toronto nine times out of 10 wins by three or four goals. He just stole that one. Yeah, he did. But, you know, one of the things I noticed is how quickly the forwards exit the zone when they're in their own zone. And you're looking for those long stretch passes and those mm -hmm. type, types of things. Well, what I noticed most the other night was how many of those got picked off and the Jets came the other direction. And, you know, if they're going to keep playing that way. I mean, you've got to count on all five forwards coming down into your zone and playing defense until that puck gets out of the zone. You can't be taking off up the ice and expecting those breakaway passes and so on because that puts a lot of pressure on the defense and the goaltending. And if they're going to continue to play that way, they're going to get passes picked off and they're going to have to defend. No, you're right. And I mean, that's, and that's the responsibility of the forwards. They got to remember to play both ends of the ice. And that's why you got to shake it yeah. up in these teams. You can't be doing the same tendencies all the time because the anomalies will not fester too far away when teams do the same thing all the time and these guys are well coached these teams and these coaches that's you know yeah. you're playing the same team 10 or 11 times you're going to figure out the way they're breaking out of there you got to switch things up so i suspect they'll have a little better game tonight uh hopefully it'll clean some of those things up and we'll have a look but here's a couple of things well, they made you. a couple they made a couple of minor adjustments on their power play where 
you know, yeah. with Matthews with the bad, bad wrist, um, you know, although kind of drives me crazy how much they talk about it, but I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't mean, think anybody ever talked about us when we had a, a broken wrist when we were playing, but anyway, it doesn't matter. He's a great player and obviously it must be bothering a little bit, but now they move him to the net front presence. He's a big guy. He can, he can handle that. And he's got great eye hand coordination. So he's going to tip some pucks in. And, you know, so I think that was a smart move by Keith to do that. Well, yeah. And you see offset that by putting the bears back with the number one line. I like, I like the way it was before. Yeah. And with Simmons coming back, it'd be interesting to see if they revert back mm-hmm. to that with Simmons playing in that spot when Matthews does get a little healthier and they can have then two solid power play units. So hopefully as we usually are recording this a few hours before tonight's game, we'll see. So today's trivia, drivel, historical facts, or any way you want to put it, I'll give you. There's a few here today that you might find of interest. Number one, March 13th, this day in 1911, Marty Walsh scored three goals as the Senators beat Galt 7-4 in Ottawa. Now, the significance of this game, it was the first Stanley Cup game played in three 20-minute periods. They used to play two 30-minute halves before that. Great information to have. Wow. In 1928, on this same day, it was the first time that they can remember in history, three assists were awarded on a goal. And that was uh, Toronto Danny Cox scored a goal and assists were awarded to Eddie Roden, Art Smith, and Jerry Lowry in a 1-1 tie against Ottawa. Here's the one I really wanted to bring imagine up. How many, imagine how many points Wayne Gretzky would have had if they had three assists. <laughs> well, I mean, that almost sounds like uh, like they talk about Mario in Pittsburgh when he'd be sitting on the bench and getting assists, okay? So you imagine how many he would have got too. It would have been... Could have been, those records may not have been around very long. Um, no. I should mention on this day in 1996, and this brings us to a little bit of a discussion we're having about a certain player. So see if you can tie it all in. Dave Andrzejczyk, this day in 1996, had two goals and an assist in Toronto, tied 3-3 at home against Winnipeg. Very appropriate to play Winnipeg tonight. After the game, however, Andrzejczyk was traded to New Jersey for two draft picks. He was moved to make room for two players acquired that day from the Islanders, Wendell Clark and Matthew Schneider. And the reason he had was moved, salary cap problems to make salary room. Can anyone say Willie Knees? Is that where that's all going to (laughs) go? So there you have it. Even back in 1996, this problem with money was still existing. And there really, and there wasn't even. You forgot the 1986 one. I was going to bring that up to not hurt your feelings. So we always forget about you. And I see you there with the long droopy eyes because I always forget about you. And I'm not forgetting about you, buddy. I got you covered here. Ricky Vibe scored two goals and had two assists and a 7-4 win over New Jersey in 1986 on this day. So now he's smiling. So now we can carry on with the show. So let's bring it on over to Matt. Let's see what he has to say. Squid, our guest today is someone Justin is more familiar with than maybe you. Originally from B.C., Played some minor hockey for the St. Mike Buzzers. Played college hockey at RIT. Got ready in the coaching after. His head stops in Atlantic City, Stockton, Alaska. We got to talk about that. And now Cincinnati. Please welcome to the show, Matt Thomas. Matt, how are we doing? Not bad, guys. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Now, with no hockey in Cincy this year, how are you getting your hockey fix to be able and ready when it is? Well, I'll tell you what, there's uh, the one thing we know about hockey people, there's always something to keep you busy. And and, uh, I got to coach my kids, so they're getting, they can't wait for ECHL hockey to return in Cincinnati. So they don't get, uh, they don't get yelled at me every time they, they, uh, they, they, 
bust up a drill. So uh, it's been great though. A uh, great opportunity. I got nine and 11 year old boys. So um, a real uh, great opportunity for me to spend a year with them. Now, how is the hockey in Cincinnati at that age level? Is there a lot of interest for kids to play? We're growing. So one of the things, uh, obviously Cincinnati, the, the history of hockey in the area go all the way back to the Rick Dudley, Robbie Fatorik, Mark Messier um, era and with the Stingers and the WHA, even a little bit before that yeah. with the, um, the Cincinnati Swords, which was a, uh, the Sabres American League team mm -hmm. uh, playing in the American League. So long history of hockey. The Cincinnati Cyclones have been involved uh, since 1990 in, in a few different renditions from ECHL to the old IHL and back to the ECHL. Um, so, uh, the hockey's good. Uh, we're trying to grow it, uh, like most markets right now, uh, we're facility challenged in, uh, in this region. So, uh, that's kind of probably the biggest issue. Uh, but some, some great players coming at, come out of here. There's a, uh, this, this year alone with the Cyclones, uh, we signed, uh, two former, uh, players that are local guys uh that came out of here went on to play division one college hockey uh and um one was a rookie coming out of ferris state and jason tackett and chris crane another one that played at ohio state and was the san jose draft and signed an entry-level deal i think after maybe his junior year at ohio state um and uh, a veteran guy so uh pretty cool to see some of that kind of full circle element uh, within your own community fantastic script yeah it's uh you know, it's amazing. It's, uh, I mean, it's growing everywhere. When you see players coming out of Arizona, coming out of California, coming out of Florida, places like that, you're thinking that are playing in the National Hockey League and are good players. So, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, Cincinnati is a vibrant city. It's a big city. It's got all the major sports in baseball, football. Um, I think a few more facilities and that that's a place that can take off big time as far as being a, a really good youth hockey center. Now, speaking of which, for you, Matt, you started off, you were born in BC, ended up, how'd you end up at St. Mike's and then off to RIT? So the, the, my favorite joke about being BC is I'm just in the, when we play three on three uh, games or you play, uh, you know, uh, at East Coast, West Coast or yeah. major junior versus uh, NCAA guys, I get to be a swing guy in the East West games because I grew up in Mississauga but I was born in Maple Ridge, BC. So uh, I, I don't have many memories um, from BC. I think my younger brother was uh, born there and then we moved, we moved back to uh, the Mississauga area. And um, so grew up, uh, grew up as a young Mississauga Terrier playing double A hockey. I started out my, uh, started out in minor hockey with Meadowvale. Uh, so I started out with uh, brown, orange and white were our colors from Meadowvale. <laughs> go all the way through and uh, ended up going to St. Mike's to the school, played for the junior team and then went to RIT and guess what color we were? Brown, orange and white. <laughs> so I, I felt that was time that I just, maybe I get out of the game when I, I, I stared, I ended in the same uniform I started. And, uh, so I, uh, I turned to coaching uh, right away. I did have my, my uh, one week training camp cup of coffee in the ECHL and they just didn't have room for, five foot six defensive centers back then in the game. So uh, I said, oh, maybe I'll go stand behind the bench and yell at the big six foot six guys. Well, by the way, uh, you moved to Cincinnati. Where are the colors of the Bengals? 
orange, brown, and white. Okay, so you don't be saying that you got away from it. You went to it. Okay, so you've, you never left this far behind. Now, was coaching something you always thought you'd like to do, or is it just something you picked up later in your career? Uh, you, you know, I, I wanted to play, right? I wanted to be an NHL player. Uh, I, I grew up, uh, one of the cool things, our, one of our neighbors was uh, uh, Bunny LaRock. So uh, oh, yeah. we used to come down and, and, uh, and Rick doesn't remember this, but I was a kid hanging around the, uh, the room and going to Mr. Green Jeans after uh, games with all the players and uh, uh, different, uh, a, a different era back then when the players would go out into the, into the I think for a little a post-game bevy and, and something to eat. But the, uh, so I grew up wanting to be a Leaf, right? Wanting to be an NHL player and, at some point, uh, I, I was able to always, I always was a captain. I was always just a leader within my group. I was the kid in the neighborhood organizing the road hockey game. Like yeah. it was just kind of, that was kind of me. So I never really thought about it until I came back from the Florida Everblades camp. And I was trying to latch on with another uh, minor league team after my college career was done. And our assistant coach at RIT at, had left the position to take uh, he got out of coaching uh, completely and went into the business world. And my head coach at the time, Eric Hoffberg said, uh, Hey man, you're a coach. I know you don't know it yet, but you're a coach. Uh, you you want to be behind the bench. Luckily enough for me, my older brother, Art, um, had got gone and done the minor league thing after playing at RIT with me. He was an assistant coach already on the team. So it was pretty cool that I got to play with my brother in college and then we got to coach together in college. So um, it just seemed like a natural fit. And I, uh, I went full tilt with it. It's great. So you had a, Matty, you had a gap in your uh, career. Um, a year. What did you do during that year? <laughs> well, this is the I think people question. would be interested to hear this. Yeah. Right. So this is the, this is the trivia question. You know, when they always ask you, you know, what's one thing that nobody would know about you? I like the saying that I, I coined the phrase, holy cow, but yeah. I didn't. Uh, what it is, the most interesting thing about me, I was, uh, I, I coached at RIT and then I wanted to play still, right? So I was back, I'm playing, skating in Oakville in the Adult Safe Hockey League and I get elbowed bad, right? Uh, probably one of your listeners, right? Um, got me right in the chin and I had a lot of concussions, right? I so many. I, I think I was dyslexic reading the uh, game chart. I didn't know I was 5'6". I thought I was 6'5", and I tried to play that way. Um, and I got a little bit of taste of my own my own medicine, right? I got a bit okay. of elbow. And, uh, so I, I, it was actually probably the worst one I had, right? So, and again, I, I grew up and playing. That was the era when you kind of fought through those injuries. They weren't really visible, and you had them, but you, you know, it was okay. And on to the next one, unless your arm was hanging off, you kept playing, and um, so for me, it, it, it kind of put me kind of, you know, on my rear a little bit and I, I struggled. Um, I was in Toronto trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I got, uh, the call from James Boyd, who's the GM of the Ottawa 67s. And he said, I've got a gig for you. I said, what's this? He goes, instead of being a real hockey player, maybe you can act as a real hockey player. And I was, I managed to weasel my way in with a couple other uh, real, real good Toronto boys onto the set of power play, the CTV 
show with Dean McDermott would have played the big star and Gordon Vincent was the GM and owner. So we acted as uh, professional hockey players for uh, about uh, three months, uh, four months. And then I, uh, then I got on my, uh, I got on my way again and drove down to Florida, the NCAA coaching convention and went up to shot the, the late great Sean Walsh, who was coaching the university in Maine and said, I want to, I want a job. What do you think you can give me one? And, he asked, who, who, who are, who are you? And he said, well, this is who I am. He said, meet me by the pool bar at 2 PM and we'll talk. And, uh, it's kind of the way hockey guys operate. So, um, I went in and the hockey world's always small, couple little connections of people I knew that he knew next thing, you know, uh, he called me a week later and said, if you want to come be the graduate assistant coach at the university of Maine, we'd love to have you. And that's how it all started for me. So here's a two-tier question for you. Number one, the biggest adjustment going from, and Squid, you can answer this one too, going from a player to being a coach, especially at the college level. And then from that period, going from being a college coach to the pros, the differences and adjustments you have to make. Well, for me, it's from going to be a college player. You're the captain the year before and your buddies, you're not allowed to go to the same parties anymore. Well, that's so my that point, the- yeah. <laughs> That was, uh, that was the first struggle, um, but it, it was kind of funny. The, for me, I kind of always was, maybe to some of my teammates' uh, dislike, I was always kind of in that coach mode as, uh, as an older player when you became experienced. I was a guy that I think people leaned on a little bit, and uh, so yeah. the transition was somewhat uh, natural for me. Um, that way, uh, as I went from college hockey to pro hockey, interesting right uh you know you get the the breadth of people in their careers the guys at the end of their career the guys in the heart of it and the guys that are new and uh I was lucky enough to go work uh for Mike Havland who went on and won a Stanley Cup with the Chicago Blackhawks and uh and we won a championship our first year in Atlantic City we won the Kelly Cup uh and it was just uh, one of those kind of perfect storm situations because the year before at the University of Maine, we lost in the national championship to, to Minnesota, in Minnesota. So it was, uh, again, that success, I think, allowed me as a young guy who didn't play pro hockey, yeah. uh, being around some successful programs. And, and I got to learn from uh, the recruiting coordinator at the University of Maine when I was their assistant coach, Grant Stanbrook, He's a legend, you know, this guy recruited all the players to Wisconsin, uh, you know, Jimmy Montgomery still calls Grant every day. I was talking to Jimmy Howard the other day, our kids played against each other. And, um, you know, Jimmy came to Maine right after I left. So I was there when we recruited him. Uh, and, you know, he still talks to Grant Stanbrook uh, every single day and Grant's now retired in Florida, but I had some really good mentors uh, that, uh, and Tim Whitehead was another guy that was there that really helped me be prepared for the challenges. And, uh, I learned along the way and we all do, but it was, uh, that was probably the biggest thing was I realized early that the coaching side is all about earning respect, not demanding respect. And I just went down, put my head down and really worked at it. It's great. You can add to that. Yeah. I, in my situation, it was, I really didn't have that many people to learn from because our coaches weren't the best coaches in the world when I was playing in, in the National Hockey League. But I, uh, I was fortunate that right away out of, out of the NHL, I got a job in Charleston in the ECHL. And 
nothing about the coaching or anything because I, I was very good with uh, sports psychology and that sort of thing. So I was able to relate to the, to the kids pretty easily and it came pretty easy to me. The hardest part for me was the fact that I had to keep myself in check on the bench because I, I, I wasn't responsible for anything going on on the ice and there was nothing I could do about it. I, like here I am, like it's almost like I'm trapped behind these players and there's not a darn thing I can do about the outcome of the game. So I would get in a few shouting matches with the referees and so on. And uh, a couple of times, a couple other coaches too. In fact, I remember John Brophy and I, believe it or not, one time he coached me twice. And I remember Dan Fornell was on our, our team. I put him out there. He was one of our regulars. And he put his tough guy out there and Dan beat the hell out of him. And Brophy tried to get around the, grass, the glass. He wanted to fight me. And I'm sitting there going, hey, old man, he's like, come on. Like, kick it easy. He's like, and he's screaming and yelling and swearing at me. <laughs> but the toughest part for me was controlling, uh, I guess, my anger when I was mad at a penalty or, or something like that. Because I, I wasn't able to go out there and do something about it. And uh, so that, for me, was kind of the toughest part for me. Well, you must have felt that too, Matt, coming as a player. That was where I was kind of going with that, not only the relationship with the players, but yourself as a former player and watching this, knowing what should be done as a captain and a former player. Now you can't – you're trying to get them executed, but you can only suggest how to do it. You can't do it yourself. Yeah, that's uh, – and that's one of the reasons that I think former players do want to stay involved in the game is because they love that that style of that, – that, I guess the fever of competition, right? What It just really gets you – the worst thing is that you can't do anything about it. So what I always tell the referees, most of the time when the coach is yelling at you, it has nothing to do with you. It's just, we know we can't yell at our players that much. So we got to turn it and yell at somebody. Uh, and, and, and I think that's that ability to control your emotion, um, you know, comes through the preparation, right. And then the experience as a young coach, you know, I was 28 years old as a head coach in the ECHL and man, was I terrified that no one was going to believe I could do what I, you know, that I knew what I was doing. So the, the poor guy would blow an offside call. And I thought it was the end of the world because everyone was going to say, Matt Thomas can't coach. So um, now I've got a little bit more patience in those situations and you learn as that goes, but that's certainly because we're all super competitive. That's why we played. That's why we want to stay in the game is the competitive nature is uh, is what keeps us and it, it's what we strive for. We really want that feeling. Well, I, I mean, that's really... Yeah, I, I, got, I got lucky, Mike, though. I had Andy Van Helleman who was the head of the officiating in the ECHL when I was coaching. But he came into Charleston one time and he sat down in my office. He said, Rick, he gave me a few hints. And he said, you know, he said, these guys are doing the best they can. I said, I know, Andy. I said, it's not... I'm not mad at them. I said, it's just it's frustrating for me that I can't go out and do anything about the outcome of the game. He said, well, when you're talking to them, call them over, keep your hands in your pocket. Don't wave your hands around. Just talk nicely to them, you know, make a joke or something. And so it was funny because I remember the first, after the first time he had told me that I called the referee over, it's Jerry Koharski actually. So he comes over and he's, I can see on his way over, he's going like, Oh, He's going to talk to me. He's going to yell at me again. I put my hands in my pocket and I said, hey, Kerry, I said, you know, I said, 
really? Do you think that was a penalty? I said, look at that one over there, right beside that, that lady over there beside the, the penalty box. And he goes and turns. I said, don't turn around now. They'll know we're looking over there. But I said, she's a knockout. You got to go over there. And so anyway, I said, but, oh, by the way, I said, I, I still don't think that was a very good call. So anyway, that was fine. There was no yelling or anything. He goes straight to the penalty box, pretends he's telling the guy in the penalty box something, looks at the one I'm talking about, turns around, looks at me and goes, ooh. <laughs> so I felt right then I kind of had a, I kind of had an in on how to get into the referees and, and kind of swayed them to come my way instead of the other way. Well, you can both answer this one too. I, I we're just we we're touching on here. Matt Smells will take it at the next level. Your indoctrination into the period as a coach was it as you expected? Because you got you jumped. I mean, you basically went from holding a stick to a whistle. So, was it more challenging or more frustrating being the new guy? And whereas Rick, from your angle, you're coming from the NHL perspective to be that guy, the new voice in the room. Start off with you, Matt. What what was that experience like for you, or in your mind? I think I got lucky. So like I said, so I went to Florida's training camp. I got released at the end of training camp. I drove back to Rochester. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in Rochester and I had just signed a contract in Columbus in the Central Hockey League. So I was getting ready to leave. This, this is a Friday. I'm leaving on the Sunday to go. On the Friday, our assistant coach comes in and says, hey, I'm, he resigns. He's got another yeah. gig. So everybody talks me into it over the weekend and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it. Right. So I went from wearing full gear in the practice with the guys on Friday training to go, to go to the central league to putting on a track suit. And I didn't have much time to really think about how different that was going to feel. Uh, I think the fact that I got to do it with my group. Uh, so I knew the coaches. Uh, one of the assistant coaches was my older brother the all the players I had played with the year before so and we just we had a great program in RIT we were we were always playing in the national championship um you know game or the frozen four and so we had a lot of success so there was a the culture was really strong there so it didn't allow any weakness right so it was just I kind of came in and I got really lucky because of that experience and allowed me to fall in love with the coaching side so it didn't allow you either to think about it for a long time so Pretty much you were, let's put it this way then, you were sort of adjusting on the fly because trying to initiate your thoughts into the system would be almost at some time maybe a little frustrating because you would be like the square hole and the round peg and all that kind of scenario. Whereas, would that be a fair statement? And you just went with the flow basically to earn that respect. Yeah, you know what? I had, So my college coach is a guy by the name of Eric Hoffberg and he's, he's a very... Uh, popular motivational coach now uh, works a lot with the Washington Capitals, Nashville, um, the New York Islanders. Uh, so he does a lot of corporate work and works with NHL teams, but he was really, really great at allowing everybody, even when you were a player to feel like get a lot of ownership in what was going on. So he valued opinion and uh, you know, a lot of people are really good uh, talkers. He was a really good listener. Too. So he could, and he allowed you to kind of say your piece. So I remember being a really young, a, a really young coach, and we're talking about the penalty kill, and he's saying, "What do you think we should do?" And I'm like, "Well, uh, you know, I killed penalties. I was kind of, I wasn't the best power play guy. I was more of a penalty kill type personality." So 
I said, I would do this. And he said, okay, go in and tell the guys. And he gave me that responsibility. So right away, I realized I better start watching more video and better start getting into this a little bit more because he's allowing me to make decisions and I better know what I'm talking about. So, but I, I had that opportunity to feel as a player graduating from that program that I knew I had ownership and that my opinion was valued. And I think that's always a great thing. Well, it's funny that you said that because uh, we're going to bring him up later in the program. Bruce Boudreaux, when he got called up to Washington, his first practice, they talked to his assistant. They said, well, here's the workout, this, 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 we'll do this, this. And so he's standing so the ice, blows the whistle and waits for the players and thought, wait a minute, this is not the way to start. I'm not going to just do the routine that they're doing. I'm going to do it my way. Five on four, down in this corner, we're doing this, this, and this. You hear, you hear, you hear. And, he just, and the players just all just looked at him and did it. And, they, and they, he just, he... I don't know if it's bullshit baffles brains, but he sounded like he was in an authoritative mood. He had it under control and it worked. Now, Squid, your experience coming from the NHL, coaching guys, I'm not going to say it was easier for you, but they're going to look at you a little different than say, no disrespect to you, Matt, but then say Matt, who's come from a college level and one of them, whereas you're coming from the show. Did you experience any of that? Yeah. Or did you feel that? No, I, I think it kind of gave me, I, I guess, instant credibility with the players of course the fact that i played that many years in the national hockey league i think and uh but i was kind of a student of not not so much of the game i i mean i learned a little bit from each coach not a whole lot that i had um but i did a lot of reading about sports psychology and psychology in general so my communication skills were very very good and coming from the national hockey league gives you instant credibility so when you speak, obviously they're looking at you like, you know, puppy dogs with their eyes open, like, yeah, you know, because they're like, say, they're standing in front of a guy who played in the National Hockey League, but that only takes you so far. Now, my my ability to communicate and do that, uh, uh, what I read and everything gave me an upper hand on how to deal with guys and how to figure them out real quickly. And I mean, one of the things I still did when I even coached in the American League and, and junior, every single day I would pick three guys I would have a conversation with. And it wouldn't necessarily be about hockey. It would be about them, about how they're doing, how are everything, if they had a wife or a girlfriend, it would be how are they, are they happy? You know, how is everything? And, and I think the more that you kind of make these guys feel like they're really wanted and, and you care about them, then I think they're going to do a little bit more for you. But you're, you're 100% right. And Matt, I think you can pick up on this because just think about this. The best players don't always make the best coaches. Wayne Gretzky, Gordie Howe. Like it comes to those type of guys that comes natural because they know how to do it. It's the guy who's, and this isn't a knock on you, but the guy sitting on the bench watching. How many guys who were fourth line players who watched the game became better coaches because they understood it from watching what these guys did. And Matt, you know, not that from your level, you're coming from a player making that transition, but there is probably that relationship with the players that they could relate to you because you came from doing it yourself at the same level. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the one thing that I, so when I was at RIT, we were a division three program. I leave RIT and I go to the university of Maine and here I am, I'm 24 years old. And I'm like, these guys are the university of Maine. They just won a national championship. You know, the Koreas are there, you know, uh, Steve had just graduated, Marty, the youngest Koreas there. You got Nico Dimitrakos, Doug Janik, all these guys that went on 
to play in the in the National Hockey League. And I'm sitting there like, are these guys, they're not going to believe in me. Right. So what so what you what you do, what you what I realized really quickly was be prepared, be honest. And I worked really hard at video. One thing that I think I was always good at, and, and my dad played um in the in the minors and you know grew up in Montreal played for Loyola High School signed with the Oakland Seals out of uh Loyola University which is now Concordia and uh so my dad was a hockey guy and I was the middle of three boys and you know we were in Toronto hockey rich so for me every night I came home we walked in hockey night in Canada was on like there was a hockey game on so I really fell in love with building the passion that way and what I knew I could do is I could always think it really well I didn't always, it couldn't always necessarily translate into my hands and my feet as it was go, it was going in the ice. I was a little bit too intense of a player. So what I did was I studied the game. I would be, when I was at the University of Maine, I'd be in there until midnight watching video. And I knew, I knew BU better than Jack Parker knew BU, right? And he was there for 45 years or whatever he was. And I, I made it a point to say, if there was a question that was going to come my way, I was going to have an opinion didn't need to be right but it was going to be mine I was going to say it with conviction and and I was going to be honest with how I felt about it and I I made that a real point to be able to connect with players that way that I'm not going to sit here and tell you I did it this way I'm going to tell you this is how I think you can do it and I always go back to that ability to create ownership uh, you know and, and obviously Justin uh, Rick's son plays for me a lot of the times it's what do you guys think what do you think here? What do you want to do? Uh, and I want them to be very much involved in the decision-making. Now, I also put my foot down when I need to put my foot down. And, and I think the guys, we have that, that respect level for each other. But I think when you connect with people, and, and Rick said it, right? The ability to go over and have those conversations and, and really have your finger on the pulse of just where they, everybody is mentally, sometimes that's all you need to be able to teach a player how to be better because they're gonna they know you care right and it's that that relationship building that really kind of builds a strong coaching foundation rick you can pick up on that no absolutely i mean there's no question about it uh i mean you know i, I went over film of course back when uh, by the way were you watching me on hockey night canada or were you two young men <laughs> i was i ever i was ripping around thinking i could shoot the puck like number 22 <laughs> but I mean, we—I mean, when I when I coached, we had VHS tapes. I mean, now the systems that you guys have now, like on the computer, and it it, it kind of puts everything in different departments and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but I, I religiously went over those tapes and watched those tapes, and and would you know the odd time I'd bring someone in to show them some things. Um, but I think the, the the biggest thing for me was that was that communication and the, and letting them have a little bit of a say. But again, like Maddie said, the biggest thing is you, you ask them what they think, but at the end of the day, you're the one that has to make the final decision. And, you know, what I can tell you right now, there's a lot of guys that played for me and we won championships and, and had great seasons in South Carolina and then in St. John, New Brunswick in the American League that would make suggestions. And I, I'd think about it for a while. And then I go, you know, that's a pretty good idea. I think we'll try that, you know, because, I mean, these guys aren't stupid. I mean, they played hockey all the way up and now, I mean, they, they have opinions on what should be done and what shouldn't be done too. And I think you have to listen to that. 
you don't always have to say yes. I think you're right. But there's times where you just say, you know what? It's a good idea. I think we should try that. So just along those lines of communication, let's 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 get into a little bit uh, a little deeper part into this uh, of this uh, sort of equation as a coach. DCHL, as we know, is a few levels removed from the show. So would you guys agree? And you can both answer this one again. Uh, the pressure in the ACHL may be on everyone a little bit more at this level because let's face it, a player being released at this level, the next stop is senior A or intermediate hockey and you're a case of beer away from beer league. So I would say it's got to be especially difficult as a coach to tell that player that it's the, the, the writing's on the wall and the end is coming near and you know what? You're going to be playing for Bud's Essel maybe in a year or two. Matt? Well, I think the great thing about hockey is all roads lead to beer league. They all do. Like, I know how many Rick played in a year. He's still playing them, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm sure it's because the beer's usually cold after the games he's in, right? But I, I, think, the, uh, I think the greatest thing about sports in general Right. And the reason why we all play it, we all love to be. And if you're if you're a crazy fan, you know, and you're you, you live and die by the results, it's because it gives you hope and it allows you to dream. Right. And, and, I, and I think the one thing that I love about the game is I have a dream to coach in the National Hockey League. I'm still living the same dream I had when I was a three, three year old, four year old kid watching number 22 street down the left, the left wing in, uh, in Maple Leaf Gardens. It's the same dream. You know, how it's going to look is a little bit different, but I, I've never lost that. And I think one thing when a player comes to you and, you know, we'll get somebody that's on an NHL contract that ends up in the ECHL and they're devastated. They never thought they'd see that level. And there's been over 700 players, I, I think that's close to it, that have gone on that have started in that league that have gone on to play in the national hockey league. So the dream's not over. I think the job as a coach in the minors is to help guide them, but keep the spark in them, keep that drive alive. Well, now let me just stop you there because, so, okay, just along those lines and squid, you can answer this one too, because you've touched on it at the beginning and I want to get in this a little deeper, yeah. the attitude of your players. Okay. Uh, now Matt, you can start off with this one. You've got the kids who are 19, 20, 21, or whatever, very young. Still, the dream is alive and looking forward to maybe playing in the show one day. you got that guy who's the middle-of-the-road guy who may have a shot if solid things fall into place and happen the right way. And then you got the older guy who had the shot, missed the bus ride to the show. He's now stuck in this city, and he's playing there. How do you keep that balance in the room from getting distorted? So I think the most important guy that you talked to is that guy that – had the shot and it didn't come to fruition. Uh, when you have that guy in your room, he's got to be all in, right? And, and for me, the cool thing about the ECHL is, so we're affiliated with the Sabres. So Buffalo is very involved in what our roster looks like. They want to be involved. They believe that the ECHL is a, is a great spot for a lot of players to develop, uh, you know, and obviously there's been tons of success from goaltenders starting out in the ECHL and moving up and becoming National Hockey League, not only players, but stars, really good, really good players in the league. And uh, one of the things that you you do is we all talk about culture and culture is somewhat of a buzzword, right? Everybody, like, what, is, what does culture mean? It, it just means this. 
everybody's in, right? Either you're in or you're in the way. Now, if that older guy who is doing it because he doesn't know what he wants to do next, he, do, he doesn't play for me. I get rid of those guys. What I want is that guy, the only thing he wants more than anything is he wants to win a championship. So he's got a huge carrot in front of him. He's, he's got the drive. He's got, got the it. desire. And he comes in and every day he sets the tone, right? And, and those guys have been there. Most of them realize what, where they miss the boat, right? And a lot of times the guy didn't miss the boat. He wasn't given the opportunity or he didn't realize it was the opportunity at one given moment. And so I always say they're opening up the door and say, yeah, hey, come on into the NHL. And they're slamming the door shut on you as you're walking towards it. So you better go throw a big toe in there and hopefully it stays on your body and you can wedge your way in because it's a really tough way. It's a really tough level to get to. And uh, so you need those guys that their motivation is through the roof and it might not be the goal of becoming an NHL player anymore, but they want to win and they want that feeling. And those are the guys you want to surround your young prospects with. Would you agree with that, Rick? More. The more, the more I see the, the ECHL, obviously I see it a heck of a lot more now that my son has been playing there for a number of years. And, and I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, I mean, in his case anyway, I, I don't think he really got that opportunity. He had a few little, you know, ups and downs here and there, but I don't think he really truly got the opportunity that he should have. But I want to talk about the ECHL in, in that when I was there, it was quite a bit different than it is now. I think with, I think in the next year or two, you're going to have about 30 teams or 31 teams, something like that. Wouldn't it not be a smart move by the National Hockey League to get involved and make sure that it's kind of a three-tier system like baseball? Because, I mean, the American League, some teams, the rich teams, they carry 30, 35 guys that 10 of them aren't playing every, on any given night. They could be in the ECHL playing and, and becoming better players and then eventually making the American League and then hopefully the National Hockey League. I just, like when I watched your club the last few years and having seven, eight, nine contracted guys from, from Buffalo and Rochester, like those were good players for your team. And those are guys that are going to move up to the American League and have a full-time American League uh, job for quite some time, maybe even make it to the National League. I think it's time the leagues get together and make it a three-tier system and kind of work in, in unison, in my personal opinion, anyway. Matt, your thoughts? Yeah, and, and I think that's it. So what's happened in minor league sports is uh, – when, if you think back to it, Rick, when you were in South Carolina, you had the United Hockey League slash Colonial Hockey League. You had the, the old IHL, the American Hockey League, the West Coast Hockey League, the Western Professional Hockey League, the Central Hockey League. Can we keep track? Did everybody get all those? Right? There was a lot of options. There is yeah. it's the NHL, the American Hockey League, the ECHL, and then the SPHL. Right. Uh, that that's where it's at right now. And the when I came into the league in 2002, uh, one of the things I remember as we went, we, we merged with the West Coast Hockey. That, so that that union yeah. came about, I think, in 0304. So after the first year I was in the league and the goal and from Brian McKenna, who was the commissioner 
at the, at the time in the league, the goal was to create the 30-30-30 model. So this is before Las Vegas, before uh, obviously Seattle. And uh, the league's worked really hard to create a better environment for prospects. I think the NHL, especially certain programs, has worked extremely hard in understanding the level and what it can do for, for their prospects and their, and their development and, and, um, and looking at that uh, three-tiered approach to development. So I think the, the growth is, is massive. You're seeing teams in our level. Like, I'll say this. When last year we'd be playing – and I'd come off the bench. We'd get on the, on the bus uh, heading either home or to the next city that we're going to play. And I've got a text from Jason Botterill and Randy Sexton and Jason Greeley um, uh, about, hey, great game. Good to see so-and-so. Uh, got a, had a two-goal game. Nice to see uh, Lukanen uh, had a shutout, uh, whatever. And these guys are watching ECHL games. They're, wa- they're following our 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 level and I think uh, that's a really great step forward for just the that goal that that Rick kind of alluded to of I think people are understanding more and more that there's a lot of really good hockey players that sometimes they can't get the opportunity and this gives them another uh, oper- another avenue for an opportunity because some of these guys just they they take they take off uh, and and then they get to the next level. And uh, you, sometimes you don't know who that guy is, who, who that's going to be that makes the most of each opportunity they get. So what would um, people one, the be... One, Mike, sorry. The one thing that, you know, when I, when I talk about that is, um, you know, I look at some of the teams, like the Marlies, for instance, and some other NHL teams. They carry like 30, 32, 33 players. I mean, they don't have their young guys playing three and three and so on and so forth. But a lot of times they're sitting there for weeks and they're not playing in games. They might be practicing. Whereas if they were down in the ECHL and getting actual minutes playing in a game, I think they'd be far better off as far as getting on their path to the national hockey league. No, you're absolutely right. That And that you and I talked about off air squid. And that's one of the things I think that, so Matt, two things. One, what are the challenges the league faces to be more aware? I mean, obviously more investment from the NHL from that standpoint. And I think they're starting to recognize it more as we see every day. But what from the fan aspect besides attendance, would people be surprised that that goes on in that league or something maybe in that league they would not be aware of? And I, I'm referring obviously to the talent level, really how good it is. Yeah, well, I think I better say uh, my height, uh, my boyhood friend Jason Greeley didn't work for the Sabres but Steve Greeley did so I apologize to to Steve but I think Jason would trade spots with you uh uh, right now but uh the uh you you know I think one of the things that's really so I was in the league in 2002 went through to 2013 and then I left and I went to college hockey for five years and uh, I came back to the league and I can tell you in that five years that I was gone from the league how much it changed then. Here's one thing that I think is really cool about our sport mm-hmm. right now. The speed and skill of players at all levels is incredible. The, they're, 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 everyone's a more conditioned athlete. 
everybody, the training is getting out of control. I think a lot of people think that they can become that. And I think there's, they're like, everybody's got the ability uh, to reach a certain ceiling. And I, I think it's really hard to get above that ceiling in terms of eliteness. Like, you know, Connor McDavid's Connor McDavid, not because he went out and shot more bucks than, you know, what the next guy in the league, uh, you know, he had a, he had a unique skill set and ability to become that type of a player. But with that being said, I think the talent level of guys that are playing in the ECHL, the game is fast. The goaltending's phenomenal. The shooting and the playmaking, I was really impressed. I, and I, we came in and we had a really good year in that 18-19 season, my first year here in Cincinnati. And boy, could we score. Like, it was it was fun. I, You know, I'd be saying to a guy, like, dump it in, in my head on the bench. And then the guy would toe drag and throw a backhand sauce pass. And the guy would one time it under the bar. And I would make a joke out loud. And I'd say, or just do that. And the guys would get a kick out of that. Um, so the, I think the one thing that I don't think people really get uh, an understanding of, just because, again, we're not on TV, it's even the American Hockey League. Like, if people haven't gone to watch an American Hockey League game, you're missing out. Like, those Absolutely. guys, yeah, those guys are skilled. They're big, they're fast. The little guys are so dynamic. The, the speed that they, they make plays and they're, I, I say, because I was coaching youth hockey this year and I was trying to tell the parents, I'm like, listen, here's where we're operating. We're on dial-up internet with these kids, right? Back in the day, and the kids don't even know what dial-up internet is, but the parents do, right? And so the players at that level and all levels beyond, like even in junior hockey, going into college hockey, like the high speed element of how they can do things and just that marriage between the skill and the brain is really, really unique. And it's, it's making our game really fast, really exciting. I'm an old school guy. Like I, as much as I love number 22, I love number 17, right? I loved, I loved Wendell and the, uh, the, uh, but you know, th that player, so right? do I. the game is so different. So do I, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you could, you can't be in Toronto and not like both, but that's, uh, you know, the game is, the game is really high octane uh, these days. And it's, uh, it's funny how it, and I think a lot of traditional fans are trying to figure out what part of the game they really like. Um, and uh, it's almost so fast that these hits and these, they're, they're devastating because the guys are just moving at well, it. it, it, It's so funny because like, unfortunately what the fans read is the Brampton beast and this just must, you know, just break your heart. The Brampton Beast goes out of business, and all of a sudden, no longer, and everybody, oh, what's that league? Nobody thinks it. But, you know, they don't understand. Like, people didn't know about it. This is why the NHL has to get more engaged, let people know about it, talk about these players. And it's funny, Squid and I have had Jared Bednar on. Can't talk, say enough about the ECHL, what it meant for his career, what the league means, what the league means for players. Paul Bizonette, you hear the guys in Spitting Chickens go on and on about the ECHL endlessly. Nothing but support, and they've come on the show and talked to us about it endlessly. I just think we have to get more involvement from the National Hockey League and point it to people how strong this league really is and how good these players are. And as Squid and I were talking about beforehand, before coming on the air, with the age of the players getting younger, there's more players available. And that 25 to 30-year-old player is all of a sudden becoming older. There's, there's, there's still lots of skill left in these guys. And one only has to look at a Jason Spezza or, or a Joe Thornton still playing for the Leafs at 40 years of age and 37 years of age to make that point. So the hockey's still good. You've got big fans in us here. And we think that, you know, 
I hopefully the NHL will step up and, and, and push this a little bit further. Well, you got, you got Jesse Schultz. He's what, 36, 37. Yeah. Uh, he's still performing at a, at a pretty darn high level in, at, in the ECHL. And I mean, when you combine guys like him and Justin and other guys, and they're the guys that are kind of being the, the, the father type to the young guys that are coming in from the Buffalo Sabres organization, for instance, I, I, you know, I, I don't think you can get a whole lot better than that. It's, it's honestly, it's the key to our success here in Cincinnati. And I think it's the key to the league success, right? Is these, these young players, they need to learn, right? And because we, we all come, you all, you, you come out of junior hockey, you think I'm going to the show. Right. Then you then you get an NHL deal, then you're in the ECHL or you're in the American Hockey League. And you can't believe that you can't stick there. And a lot of people will think themselves out of the opportunity because they're wasting time. And you need those players that are really, I think, I think dialed in to how important the, the leadership is. And I think what our league should have, and we talk a lot about this within the league is that support to be able to have those veteran players. It's, it's much like the rules. You have a rule on how many you can have, but financially it'd be really nice to be more supportive of that veteran player because the role they play in a young player, because I can teach them as a coach, but somebody that's living, have lived through that experience recently is such a great uh, asset to player development. And, and, and I think you see it a lot in the American hockey. They do a real good job with, with, you know, surrounding those young prospects with really good players and in the ECHL, I think that's the model that we've taken. If you look at Buffalo, Rochester and Cincinnati, there's been a real good mix of veteran players and coming in to, to help the young guys. You look at a guy like Eric Stahl, like how good is Eric Stahl going to be for, for Dylan Cousins and Jack Eichel and Sam Reinhardt to develop like, you know, what a ton of uh, experience he has. And uh, he's lived that life as a super high-end prospect. And he can really help those guys in the same way Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza and Wayne Simmons can can help out the young league players. So it's it's a really important aspect of building a team and developing a, a level and developing a culture where kids are, aren't going to miss their opportunities. And the other thing, Matt, too, you got to remember that, is that's a, that's a stall still there after the oh. deadline. <laughs> oh well, that's another story altogether. I hope it, I hope it's not here. The um, um, at the end of the day, though, Matt, it's all about winning. And here's the other thing about it too: even at any level, the more you win, the more people are going to come and watch you. So the to make that point even stronger, is Squid and I've said that fifth or sixth guy or last five six guys in that AHL roster that are sitting there every day just practicing with the team and never playing. Why not have them playing for the ECHL affiliate, helping that team get better and win games and build, build a platform for fans to get behind and support and show that the team is going to be supported by the National League team. And I think that's why it's so critical. Yeah, you're bang on with that. And, you know, two of the things, again, a lot of it is perception, right? And like anytime you're trying to change something, it, it takes time, right? You think about all the things going on in our world outside of sports, that we're, we're trying to change on how we treat people, how we treat it, what we think of other people. It, it's no different in this, right? It's, we'd all love it to go like this, but it takes time, right? And, and everyone's working at it. And that's, what's great. Same thing here. One of the things that a lot of players, they believe that if they went to the ECHL, 
right? That the road, the, the mountain's too high. They look up at the mountain, they say, how am I ever going to get all the way up there? And in the American Hockey League, you're one step away from it in their mind. So they're just, they're so much closer, right? And that movement of players all the way through, uh, we are in a business of winning games, right? And, um, and I think when you're putting young prospects in positions to succeed and be successful, uh, you know, Rick can attest to this. There's nothing better as a hockey player when you're in the zone and you're feeling like the, the net looks huge. Like you see, the, you don't even see the goal, right? You just see what's open and you're, and that puck is going in there. And, the, and nothing worse when you're the goalie and the puck looks tiny, looks like a marble, right? Uh, so those, those two things, it's really nice to be able to create that success mentally for players. And I think that's where the ECHL can really come into play to help that development where, and you're saying the Leafs are doing a great job with Newfoundland. Right? You know, they, they do, they've done a great job uh, in, in their, uh, and Newfoundland kind of came into the league as an expansion team and won, won the championship. And, uh, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty special, but there was, there was a big investment from Kyle Dubas and Brendan Shanahan and the entire management team to say, this is an important part of the development process for all players. It's great. Yeah. It's uh you know, the big thing too is, is remember is that, you know, obviously, you know, that uh, the ability to get in there and play with some of the guys and learn and everything. But I, I don't think, you know, even if you're at the ECHL level and you're a young kid trying to make it to the national league or the American league, which is the next step. I mean, winning doesn't hurt either. If you're part of a winning team yeah. for one, maybe two years in a row, then all of a sudden your stock rises. I mean, if, if you're part of that and, and a big part of it, uh, there's no question that regardless of what kind of player you are, winning helps. And it, it, it probably brings your chances to get to the American League a lot better than, than it was before. Well, let's take that to the next step, Matt, winning and losing. What makes you, besides the obvious winning and losing, what makes you sleep better at night as a coach and what keeps you awake at night as a coach? Well, you know what? It's uh, I used to not sleep. I'd be, I'd be, I put it this way. I would sleep in my office a heck of a lot, uh, especially after losses. And then you'd come in and you think you could figure it out in a night. And the one thing that I, over the years, what I've realized is that the games, the game's a 50, 50 game, right? Every decision you make is going to be right or it's going to be wrong. Uh, and that in the game, like the same mistake that's happening in my my kids' atom hockey is the exact same mistake that's going on in the NHL. Just a little bit faster, right? And, and a little bit uh, more polished in the camera angle and the replay's a little bit uh, cleaner. Uh, but it, really, that's, that's sport in, in itself. So for me, what I try to do is I've, I've figured out that I can't change everything. I can't control everything. I can control attitude. Yeah. And, and what I've realized is that the player's belief in having success is way more important than their ability to be perfect. So if they believe that they can be good, I prefer them believe that and then tell them that they can't and they're not good enough. And you, we can really beat each other up in this, uh, in this business and it's hard, but what, what I found over the years is though, and I learned a hard lesson going to the university of Alaska Anchorage and, and coaching there, we didn't do much winning. And it was hard and I handled it, but I had never lost in my career as a coach. 
So, and even as a player, like I'd always been a part of winning programs. So for me, I did not know how to handle that. And I learned more in that five-year stretch, I think, than I might have learned my whole coaching career of just exactly what is important. And to me, it's all about what you believe. And I talked, I opened up with talking about the dream, right? What's the dream? Mm-hmm. Keep the dream alive. Keep that, keep that fire, you know, keep it lit. And uh, if the guys have it, and the fire might mean a little bit different things for other people at different times, but as long as the attitude comes in and everybody's really pulling on the same rope, things, things go real well and the winning starts to take care of itself. Well, you're right. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the issue that, that, that it's all about. And, you know, dealing with the players and the communication is Rick has always been a big advocate for that. It, it's all about communication. So you're in your experiences dealing with players, maybe good or bad, any memorable moments you can share with us. You don't have to name the player, but kind of a funny exchange or a serious exchange with a player, either positive or, or badly, went badly for the player or sideways for the player that you can recall. Well, yeah, there's a lot of them, right? But uh, I think one of the ones that constantly stands out uh, for me when I think about how do you connect with players, I remember I was a young coach. Uh, it was my first year as a head yep. coach. Okay. And we're in Atlantic City. And we're in first place. We're having a really good year. And we've lost three games in a row. And to a young coach, like the, like the wheels are falling off, right? Like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get fired. What's going on? And I had a veteran defenseman at the time by the name of Dan Peters, who was a Colorado college star, played for the Philadelphia Phantoms in the American League, had been that prospect and was on the kind of the, on the way down. And uh, I remember coming out on the ice and Mark French was my assistant coach at the time. And uh, uh, he, he was the head coach in Hershey, won a Calder Cup with Hershey. And I said, we're going to uh, put a garbage can at center ice. Right? Like, I, like I was broke. Like I was trying to act like John Brophy or something. I'd seen Brophy do a few of these things over the years. And uh, I said to the guys, I, I put them on the line and I said, you guys don't want to work. Well, I'm going to make you work. Right. So I made him go down one and back and the guys in the, I, to preface it, I wanted the practice. I wanted them to float and they were unbelievable in practice. They were, they weren't missing the net. The passes were on. The effort was awesome. So it was totally backfiring <laughs> on me. Right. So now I'm going to skate them, but I didn't really want to skate them. Like I, I didn't believe that the bag skate, you know, you know, if you don't think your team's in condition, you bag skate, them. but to send a message, I don't know really what that does to the players all the time. Uh, obviously Daryl Sutter just had a little bit of a good bag skate. So there, there's a, there's a spot for it still in the game. Right. Uh, but so I said, so, so I, you know what, get off the ice. And I kicked everybody off the ice. So here comes Dan Peters, the veteran guy already mad that he knows his career's kind of on the downswing, right? And he's like, you're losing it. You're losing it, right? And he didn't know what I had up my sleeve. So made the guys get undressed, meet me out on the beach. So we're standing, me and Frenchie, we're standing out on the beach and here comes the players and they're like, what is this donkey going to make us do, right? Like he, so I said, listen, do you guys believe in what we're doing here? And so I said, and they're all, yeah. I go, so, okay, if you do, follow me. And I turn around, we ran into the ocean and it was, it was February, right? It was like the ocean in Atlantic City. So, you know, so you saw the guys kind of look at each other. They, they were getting ready for the wind sprints on the beach or something. And we went in and we went out, we packed up and I had a paintball game uh, set up and we went and played paintball, right? So, but it was funny. This player was like, what are you doing? You've lost your mind. And 
you know, he and I had a, a bunch of good laughs and obviously we still stay in touch quite a bit. So it's, uh, it's funny how, you know, sometimes you, you have those moments that, you know, you've connected with your team yep. and the thing, and that's kind of a, you know, I don't do that stuff all the time. It's not like I've got one of those every year. Uh, that might be the only time I did something like that, but that's one where I really knew, you know, uh, a funny one where I, I thought maybe I was going to lose the team. <laughs> Luckily, oh, that was great. That's a great. That was great. Squid, have you had one like that? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I don't really remember one in particular, but but there are so many different times where you know when things weren't going well. Rather than you know, yeah, your first thing in your mind is like, I'm going to skate the hell out of these guys, and I'm going to make them suffer. Then you start thinking about it. And you go, well, wait a minute. I mean, they're working their asses off. I mean, we've had a couple of bad breaks or whatever. So. Let me change it up a little bit. And we, we'd go bowling or we'd go do something else and, you know, kind of get their mind off it. And But but the one thing you would have to do is have that conversation with them and make sure that they're still in and they're still focused on what you guys need to do for the rest of the season. That's great. I mean, and uh, so, I mean, on the other hand now, Matt, what about, um, you know, you said you had that feeling where, you know, you thought you maybe lost the team. What happened after that? You pulled that stunt with the water and did the team start winning? Oh yeah. We went, we went like gangbusters down the stretch and it was, it was great. And again, I think the one thing about, you know, as a young coach, you make a lot of mistakes, right? Uh, you, you just do. And just because you don't know, you think, you know, and you lean yeah. on people that do know, but it was, it was cool. It was at the NHL draft one year, we, we got the, that NHL coaches association coaching clinic. And you get in these, you get into these breakout roundtable uh, conversations with coaches. And I remember one of the questions that I had, and because you can just here you are, you're sitting with these NHL coaches, and you can ask them whatever you, whatever you want. And uh, I asked, do you talk to your coach or do you talk to your team after games, win or lose? And it was funny. Everybody had a little bit of a different thing. And Paul Maurice's was awesome. He says, No, I don't need to talk to my team. Like if they don't know how I feel about him at the end of 60 minutes, then I didn't do my job behind the bench. And I just thought that was a really, that was a really cool thing for me because for me, I'm wired really, really like I'm intense. Right. And the worst thing you can do is go in and tell them just how much you don't like them. Then you go back and you watch the video and you're like, Oh my God, you're actually really good. You're a good team. <laughs> now I owe them an apology. So I don't want to apologize. Uh, I don't want to. So after a win, I go in a great, great job, you know, give them a, you know, that that's great. But after a loss, I don't talk to them. And I prefer to take a little bit of time to collect and then have that meaningful conversation that isn't filled with emotion and just the pure, because we, we just want to win. That's everybody wants to win. The players do too. Now coaching, how long do you want to continue doing this? Are you looking to move up in the ranks at some point if you can? Well, that's, that's why you do it. Uh, I've got a great situation here in Cincinnati currently, uh, very strong ownership. Cincinnati is an incredible city. Um, for a minor league team to be in a major league city like Cincinnati is a real unique environment. Uh, it was a big move from Alaska for the family. So uh, I like where um, I like it for my family right now. But for me, I, I always say, people say like, you know, do you love it? I say, I, I don't love it. I'm obsessed with it. It's everything to me, right? All I do is think about hockey. I talk about hockey. I watch hockey. I analyze hockey. So for me, I want nothing more than the opportunity um, just to have great experiences. And 
I, you know, it's really hard to make the NHL as a player, as a coach, as in any capacity, it's really, really hard. Um, I, that's my dream. though. So for me, I'm going to keep dreaming and I'm not going to let anybody tell me I can't. Um, and if it happens, great. If it, if it doesn't, I know that I had a life in hockey. Uh, I, I don't want to do anything other than this because it, it is my obsession. And for me, it's nothing, nothing more rewarding when I get to be involved in the game every single day. I was going to ask you about Alaska. Now you ended up, now, but I'm going to preface this by saying how you ended up there and what it was like. Now, when I played in the Pacific Coast League with a team called Port Alberni, they used to go and play a weekend series against a team in Anchorage every year. Of course, they stopped the year I got there. Louie played with me in that team, uh, Squid. Um, oh, yeah, and all the guys, when they, they, all they would rave about how great a city, how great they were, nuts they were for hockey. And it was just like Vegas of the North. Now, this is in the 70s, so it's a long time ago. How did you, what was it like for you there? And what was the experience? So it's, it's funny, right? So my experience with Alaska, I'm coaching in Stockton and Fresno in the West, in uh, the Western part of the ECHL. And we're going up, Anchorage has a team. So we go up there and you go up there in January and February and to walk from the bus to the hotel, <laughs> from the hotel to the restaurant, you know, you breathe in and everything's frozen. And Anchorage, Anchorage is a very uh, temperate city in terms of like, it never stays too cold. It never stays uh, too warm, right? So it's on the oceans. So there's a lot of uh, change in the temperature, but I never really loved it. The one year we played them in the conference finals and we went to double overtime at game seven to go to the finals and we lost. And we walked outside and the sun was still up and it was like 1130. Like, this is in May, like late May. And I'm like, that's pretty awesome. So I end up, uh, I, my kid, my kids were young, so I wanted to transition pro hockey's it's, it's a tough business, right? It's not easy. You're moving, you're, you never really fully unpack. And, um, so for, for me, I wanted my kids to grow up in a little bit of a different environment. And, and I obviously had a love affair with the NCAA. I really loved the, the, the level's great. The coaching's great. The kids are great. Everything's, everything's really nice. So I, I end up getting the university of Alaska Anchorage job. And I remember telling my wife, now remember, we're living in California. She's going to get milk from the store for the babies. And she's wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt, right? And I'm like, I got the Alaska. Like, no, you didn't. <laughs> you know, so fast forward, we go there. We didn't leave the state for three years. She wouldn't leave. It is, if you've never been, you have to go. It's an incredible place. The people are unbelievable. Yeah. It was by far, and this is not to knock any of the other places I've been, it was the coolest experience, so much fun. You're talking about moose walking through your backyard. And you don't, they don't call it fishing there. You call it catching. You just go in yeah. and you just catch them. Um, bears walking through the campsite. We got into the whole life there. And there's so many cool people. It's, it's such a big state. Uh, just an awesome experience. Now, the hockey is, it's, Right now, the program has been uh, eliminated. They have to raise a certain amount of money by August for them to reinstate the program. And that was going on when I was there. So really tough to get some, uh, to get footing and uh, kind of in the recruiting in when you never know if your program is going to survive. And it's very much run on oil, uh, the whole economy up there. And so right now that program, uh, I feel really bad for the people of Anchorage, the players there, the current coaches there. Um, what an incredible place uh, to be a student athlete. 
to be a coach and to grow up as a kid. Like they idolize the kids in the town idolize the University of Alaska Seawolves. And uh, just, it was just a great five year experience. Just a couple of minutes left here before we let you go. We want to thank you for joining us today, Matt. It's been very enlightening. Um, ECHL. I'd be remiss if I didn't say some of the strangest things you've seen over your years. Now, we've had players tell us everything from equipment managers being put in net to play goal to coaches or GMs phoning players going into an opposing city trying to find beer league guys to fill a roster. So I'm sure you've come across a few things that people would be amazed at in your career. Yes, and yes to those two. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> the back of the bus being on fire and uh, you start to smell smoke and then you're stuck in a city. They're, sorry, but one of my favorites, because we had a John Brophy story and Leaf fans will love John Brophy stories and probably the, one of the best guys in hockey, right? But an absolute competitor. We're, we're playing in Wheeling. The game before, we opened up the season with him. Uh, and we scored in the first minute. He put out five guys and they jumped line roll. Like it was one, nothing. There was still 59 minutes left in the game, but he's like, we're going to send a message. That was broke. Right. So we go out to wheeling. So we come by where we got it. And then that brick rink, you got to walk in front of their bench. There's no tunnel to the bench, like the NHL, all the NHL rinks. Right. And he comes down and he puts his hand on top of Mike Havlin, who's the head coach. And he's like, I am going to like, it's threatening him threatening that he's going to beat him up right and and then and happy's laughing going all right bro and i'm this is i'm like this is john brophy like i watch this guy coach the leafs this is the i'm you know this guy's a legend so first period nothing scandal free come out on the second period bro standing on our bench so we walk out so happy goes he's on our bench i'm like oh geez like here we go right and, and he's 70 <laughs> and something years old like, he's an He's an old guy, right? And he's so we walk over there and we're standing on the bench and um, we like look at their equipment manager and their equipment manager's like, look, he doesn't even realize. So he looks, he's like, bro, we're on, you're on the wrong bench. And he's like, no, we're not. It's the second period. We switch ends. And we're like, we're like you, you don't switch benches. And he's like, yeah, we don't. Like he's yelling at us. So the refs come out, the teams come out, like, Nobody wanted, he refuses to get off of our bench. And he's like getting ready to start swinging, right? And uh, I'm just sitting there going like, this is what I dreamt it would be like. This is exactly what I dreamt it would be like. This is slap shot right here in minor league hockey. So um, that story is the top. The other one is the old Toledo arena. There was no, there was nothing separating the bench. So I'm a, I'm a coach. I there's a fight on the ice. So I'm kind of like leaning over. And I get pushed. I almost get pushed over. Turn around. There's a drunk guy standing on the bench. Duke's up. He wants to go. So, you know, you, you just answer the bell at that time. There's no talking. Oh, yeah. right? But he's standing. He's literally standing on the bench. And security guards are just sitting there watching it. Like, it was like, it was a little bit of the wild, wild west at times. Uh, I can I can gladly say none of that stuff goes on anymore in the league. <laughs> I'm certainly glad that I got to be a part of uh, some of those things. But the league certainly changed the professionalism. Is through the yeah. roof, and um, it's uh, it's a credit to the owners and the and the in the league and the and, and our commissioner and the people that are running the league. Um, it's uh, and, and it's a credit to the National Hockey League getting very involved. That things are going in a real positive direction for our league. It's great. Closing call. No, I, I think it is. I mean, uh, I think it says a lot about some of the some of the players in the league too, especially the guys that have been around a while that. 
that keep this league kind of going and, and help the younger guys so that they can move up and so on. And I'm talking about guys that have been around for quite some time and they know they're not going anywhere. Um, they have other things to look forward to, hopefully down the road. But um, but those are the guys that keep this league going because they're the ones that teach the younger guys who become better players and end up moving up the chain. Well, what I like is I, I, I was, I've, I've been kind of torn to ask this question now because I don't really want to put you on the spot. And I know his mom and dad are probably going to get mad at me for asking it, but I want to talk a little bit about Justin. Now, I see that Ben Boudreaux is having some success for Wayne. He's coaching. His dad was on the show and talked about him. And his dad was not critical of him, but, you know, he called it as it was. He was learning and he was coming along very well. The succession plan coming into the league for kids like Justin. Now, he's been he's I, I've spoken to him and he's got he definitely speaks well beyond his years. He does exhibit a lot of qualities of leadership and seems to really understand the game very well. Where I'm going with this is the fact that the succession plan for kids like Ben and for Justin to move them into the coaching, I think would be a good thing. And especially from, coming from your come from the college transition to coaching would be the same at the ECHL level. And I think it's to be one of the foundations that could help build the league a little bit further. Would you agree with that, uh, Matt? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I talked to Ben uh, Boudreaux just the other day um, and I was asking how Justin was doing. And he's like, man, he's, he just, he's just a natural leader. Like it's, it's really fun for him to see. Right. And, and, and again, Ben's, Ben's got a lot of really good experience. Uh, you know, he's, he's worked under a lot of different people as assistant coaches and he's done a tremendous job in Fort Wayne. Um, and that's a huge rival. So I don't like him that much. Let me, I, I get it. I, I don't <laughs> like him that much, but, uh, um, shut down for the year. Um, if it makes you feel better, Maddie, I hate watching them in that sweater. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah, they're the orange and black. They're the orange and black. <laughs> there you go. Back <laughs> over to red and black. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah. I, but I think my to finish my point. Yeah, here, please. This is what I think. There's so many incredible young uh, young men, and Justin being one of those types of guys. The day he decides to step behind the bench look out like he's got it like obviously you know he he got to, he grew up in charleston right when and he was out in new brunswick too with you or was he in toronto during yeah. that time right um so all three places all three places and when you when you're around that as a young player and there's a reason that there's a lot of nhl players kids that go on to have really good hockey careers coaching careers they're around that culture and they they realize just how important you need to you need to uh, act and behave and work every single day to get the most out of it. And it's just what youth sports in general will do for you. But uh, the, like great hockey mind. The one thing that what I love about any player is if I never have to go ask you to work harder, we've got a good relationship. And like sometimes it's hey, settle down, big fella, because. You know, he's, he powers over top of Rick, right? He's a big, big Six foot six. Yeah, he's a monster. And I, I nothing worse than when he gets like an award and they want me to go out on the ice and present it to him. And he's on skates and I'm on my dressings. I'm like, come on, like, this is, this is almost like, it's a comedy show. We don't need this, right? Uh, the, uh, so, but he's, uh, to, to me, those types of players, there's so many good players in our league 
that, but it, there's just not a lot of coaching jobs. There's a, not a lot. It's a much like a player. There's just a select few that get the opportunity, but man, do we have some good people that, and he is my player assistant, meaning he's not Reg Dunlop in it, but he's, he's learning, right? So every decision we make, Hey, when do you want to, when do you think we should leave for this road trip? Do you guys want to go the night before the, how do you want to do this? What do you think we'll bump and practice back tomorrow? Cause he's the guy who's connected. He's got his finger on the pulse of the team. So he's invaluable to a coach and for, in, in, in my role, because he's, he knows what it, what it's like. And when he makes that decision, like he is going to be ready to, to climb the rank real quick um, because just because of his experience and he's, he's the right type of uh, person. He's got the right attitude. And, and again, he's, I've never had to ask him to work ever. Well, you know where I was going with this is, is um, you see it in college football and, and NFL where the, the kids come along and take, follow in the father's footsteps. So why not in hockey as we see it? Because, listen, a kid living under the limelight with a father who's well-known in the National Hockey League or is well-known throughout playing professional sports sees the highs, the lows. And if he's mature enough to adapt to that and understand what really does happen from an early age, and then carries that on when he gets older. And I think in Justin's case, one of the things went in his favor is the fact that he didn't really appreciate it or not appreciate it. It didn't really dawn on him until he played for the Toronto Marlies when he was much older, that his father was actually somebody very well known in the hockey world coming from other places. So he grew it in sort of organically as he got older. But to me, I think that's very important. And I think that's very critical to build that succession plan. And any good business, you do the same thing. So that's where I was going with this. And I just thought that I, I thought that's the answer you would give. And it's good to see because I think that can only strengthen the league. I, I think the other thing, Mike, too, is that uh, when he went to the U.S. program in Ann Arbor at the time, uh, I think that really helped him a lot uh, when he was 16, 17 years old. And then four years of university where he's on his own. He learned how to cook. He took a cooking course. I mean, he's almost a chef now. This kid can cook. When he comes home in the summer, basically that's his job. He's our cook. And uh, so we took out, we look after him and make sure his gas is, his car is full of gas and so on. But I mean, he's had a lot of really good life lessons. He's traveled to Alaska several times when he was with the U.S. program and with Miami, Ohio. He's been to Europe a number of times. Like this kid's been all over the world. He's already got to live a pretty good life and and he knows what it's all about trust me this kid he's got everything put together pretty solidly well that's terrific and i mean i mean that's that's great to see it's good for the game to see this and see the transition as we've talked about the succession plan so but anyway matt i don't want to uh, i know you've got a son's hockey practice you've got to get to some point this afternoon and get back on the ice we want to thank you for joining us this afternoon it's been very nightening like to have you back again when the season gets back up and running uh, do we want to, we do, we are big fans of ECHL. October 30th is opening night. Yeah. October 30th is October, the, the opening night next year. But anyway, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, best of luck moving forward with the kids. And then when you get back with the big guys and uh, hopefully by next year, October 30th, as Squid said. Well, some of the, I appreciate it, Mike, and reckon uh, some of the, even the young kids are starting to pass me. I'm starting to look up at some of them. Uh, one of the guys, one of the guys, uh, an old leaf, Blaine Stoughton. Yep. His Blaine granddaughter Stanton. played with my older boy. She's a stud. 
She's a stud. And Blaine, Blaine lives in, uh, Blaine lives here in Cincinnati. So he helped me coach. Um, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm already looking up to some of those kids, but I appreciate it guys. I, every opportunity I have to talk about what our league and the ECHL can, can do for a player and just how hard it really is. Like a lot of guys think, well, I'm not ever going to play there. These, all these players are really talented and I appreciate you guys giving a, uh, doing what you do obviously being a leaf fan myself uh it's great to see where the team is this year uh and uh and, and great to be a part of your show great thanks again matt okay best of luck we'll talk thanks, to you soon man. thanks great. guys appreciate it okay thanks matt you bet well squid always a pleasure to have uh anybody talking hockey no matter what level it's at the passion is there the skill level at the level is there. You can hear it coming through loud and clear. This guy, Matty, he just, he just eats, sleeps, and drinks hockey. And boy, oh, boy, it comes through, as I just said, loud and clear. Well, I know one thing I can tell you for sure is that my son loves playing for him. Uh, he, he's a player's coach, but yet he's smart. He knows what he's doing. And uh, Justin loves playing for him in Cincinnati. I can't imagine him going anywhere else to play after this year other than back to Cincinnati to be with Matt. And, uh, uh, he's a smart coach. He's been around. He's been in a lot of different cities. And uh, the good thing is, is guys like him are starting to push the ECHL to, on the, onto the map where they should be. And, uh, and that, that, that's what that league needs more than anything. Agreed. And I think that's why more talk about it and the more awareness people are made of how good this league really is. And we've had everybody, as I said, even Gabby come on and told us about, you know, when guys are going to the ECHL, how good that league really is. And, you know, yeah, if you think you're going to go down there and just light it up, you're surprised. You're going to be very surprised. This league yeah. is very good. And don't be holding your head down low that you're getting sent down. You're not. You're going to improve. And these guys are going to help you. And I think. As I said, unfortunately, when you get situations like Brampton, it just throws a black eye in the whole league, which is unwarranted. Because I can tell you, you could probably well, stop. You could stop 100 hockey people in Toronto and they would even know there's a team there, which is unfortunate. No, they, they wouldn't. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate they even got a franchise to begin with. I mean, the junior hockey team didn't work there. Uh, they had to move eventually. That's right. And, I mean, the only, thing that, the only thing that was keeping that team alive was the city. By giving them, I think it was a, you know, I think it was a hundred million dollars a year for each. Not a hundred, not a hundred million. Not a hundred million. I mean a million. Sorry, a million dollars a year for the amount. Of, did I say a hundred million? <laughs> I I didn't mean a hundred. You and I million, could build a team for that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course, I could too. But I, I thought it was. I, I thought I said a million. Yeah. Hundred million. No, you and I could build a good team for that. Jeez, oh man, we we be competitive even. Well, it's been another great show again, folks. We want to just uh, you know highlight again the ECHL. You know, we're big fans. We want to talk about it. Follow the league. Take a look online. Follow some of the teams. Um, the games are available. You've got to do a deep dive to find the search place to to watch the games, but they are there. Flow. They're on Flow Sports. F L O Sports. And there's college hockey, basketball, football. There's ECHL. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, games uh, that are on Flow Sports. Let's go. What's it cost? That cost, Greg. You're giving a sales pitch here. Uh, I'm not really exactly sure. <laughs> I, I think it's somewhere around 100 bucks for the year. 
right. uh, but that that include that's a whole calendar everything all right you perfect know, and that's for you know college basketball college hockey uh echl uh there's all kinds of sports on there there's there's everything you can imagine fantastic while we come to wraps of another show we uh we're going to bring you we'll be back next week with another guest I just want to thank you for listening and watching on YouTube or follow us on uh, Podbean, iTunes, Apple, all your favorite podcast networks were available. And until next week, everybody have a great week and we'll talk to you then.